Welcome to Climate Plus, a DevX podcast. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. Every year, usually around this time, the world turns its attention to climate change and what we're doing or not doing about it. At the UN Climate Conference, or COP, negotiators get deep into the weeds on every aspect of the climate crisis. This year, it's happening in Dubai. To help make sense of this complex, critical moment, we're bringing you conversations with leading climate thinkers, activists, and experts, and asking them, can COP28 deliver? When you reach that situation where you could not adapt to climate impacts, which we thought we will be able to, then you have to address those impacts by helping people recover and rebuild their lives. And and that's how we uh, define the terminology of loss and damage. Loss and damage. In the weeks leading up to COP28, this has been the big issue. And that's because of a troubling set of facts. Efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions have been too slow, and climate-vulnerable communities face limits in their ability to adapt to climate change. We know from watching news reports of climate-related disasters, or from witnessing them firsthand, what this means. People around the world are already experiencing loss and damage due to climate change. The question is what to do about that. Harjeet Singh has been pushing governments to answer that question for years. He's now the head of global political strategy at Climate Action Network International. Harjeet has seen rich countries drag their feet while climate vulnerable countries pay the price. And this year, he's fighting to ensure that a new loss and damage fund actually gets money to those in need. Here's our conversation. Harjeet, how are you? I'm good, Michael. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to reconnecting with you at another COP. It's been a few years since we were last. Well, you've been at all of them. I've taken a couple of years off now, but looking forward to seeing you again in Dubai. Likewise, likewise. You uh, have been busy and uh, it seems like you never really um, take much time away from what is really a negotiation that um, happens pretty continuously, not just at these cops, but between them. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of, you know, what you've been working on um, since COP27 in Sharm? I mean, what's been at the center of your attention? So you're right, Michael, there's a lot going on over the last um, 12 months because this particular COP, COP28 uh, in Dubai, is quite an unusual one. I've been following negotiations continuously since 2008, but this one is far more complicated and uh, really, really busy. Because if you look at the number of agenda items that are there on this COP, either streams of work concluding or new areas emerging are just massive. 
Uh, of course, at Shamal Sheikh, we had a historic decision to uh, establish a loss and damage fund. And last few months, we have been really busy uh, following the processes and influencing the transitional committee to uh, set up the fund now and design it in a manner so that it works for people. But that's not the only thing uh, that's important uh, for this COP. This COP being in UAE makes it absolutely important for us to talk about the cause of the crisis, which is fossil fuels. So we are pushing for a decision on just an equitable fossil fuel phase out. So that's another thing. And the presidency has heard us. Uh, in fact, at the pre-COP, the presidency did acknowledge that there's going to be a language on fossil fuels, but we don't know how strong it's going to be. So that's the another one. And then connected to that, a new work program on just transition that has to be agreed at the same COP. And let's not forget global goal on adaptation that has to be finalized by this COP. Uh, we have ongoing mitigation work program. Uh, we have the always outstanding agenda on finance. I can go on and on, Michael. So I just wanted to give you a flavor how busy this COP is going to be and how last few months have been super hectic for us to following many conversations and another big one, which is global stock take. So, um, so my own engagement has been uh, on various issues, but particularly I have followed uh, loss and damage uh, very closely, but and pushing for issues around adaptation, finance, uh, and of course, uh, the fossil fuel phase out. Yeah, I, I hope you're also um, sleeping at some point, <laughs> because I know that, you know, once the cop starts, there doesn't tend to be um, much um, time for sleep. So hopefully you're, you're taking care of yourself too. But I, I guess I'd be interested to hear from you, why have so many things kind of piled up on the to-do list for COP28? Is that a dynamic of how these negotiations happen? Is it the case that some COPs um, tend to be more decision-making or, or finalizing COPs than others? What's the, the sort of pattern that is at work here as you sort of step back and look at the way that the whole COP process has, has unfolded over the years? So in some cases, it is planned because many of the things that are getting concluded were part of an ongoing uh, work program, which was agreed. For example, on adaptation, the two-year work program was agreed, which is now going to be concluded. But there are certain things which make absolutely uh, topical, considering who is hosting the COP. And that's where the issues of fossil fuels, something that we have been pushing for quite some time, uh, but now that we are going to be uh, in Dubai, in UAE, uh, which is a petro state, it makes it absolutely relevant uh, to get a decision on fossil fuel phase out uh, at this location. So there are things which are more in the making, uh, but then we also use the opportunity of where we go uh, in these COPs. So particularly on just transition, again, that was discussed last year, but here is the moment where we must make sure that we come out with a robust um, just transition work program. And um, being in UAE makes it uh, even more pertinent. Yeah, and I, one of the things that always really enlivens these COPs is the, the civil society pressure, the civil society energy um, that you all bring to the floor. You know, I remember even in Madrid in 2019, um, really strong demonstrations on civil society by civil society to the extent that 
um, you know, many were, were pushed, escorted out of the, the building. It was quite a dramatic situation. What are you anticipating in terms of that kind of civic space, the ability to bring that kind of activism to bear in UAE? It's a, a place with, you know, particular uh, political dynamics and a particular political culture. Do you think you'll be able to to carry those messages in as strong a way as you hope to? Well, as civil society, uh, that's our role. Uh, we have to uh, speak truth to power. We have to highlight issues that are important uh, for people. And uh, we are going to uh, make some very strong uh, actions and um, messages coming out of COP28. And just to explain to your listeners a little bit, wherever these uh, climate conferences are organized, there are different zones that are earmarked. So a zone where negotiations happen, that's called as blue zone. And that blue zone is normally an area uh, owned by United Nations for that period. And probably that's why blue. And, and then there are green zones uh, where civil society um, events are organized and certain other actions uh, which is not under the purview of the UN. So in the UN space, uh, they cannot say no to us when we want to organize certain events. So we have full freedom and flexibility and our rights are protected in that blue zone. So irrespective of the country, uh, UN rules apply. So and because we are going there to influence the negotiations and negotiations happen in that blue zone, we are going to be doing a lot of actions in that space to convey our messages. And, and that's, that's what we have been doing. So we are fairly um, confident that we'll be able to uh, do demonstrations and the kind of actions that we do. And so far, our interaction with the uh, incoming COP presidency, uh, UAE, they have also assured that civil society is going to get its space to voice its concerns. So uh, they have been uh, fairly open so far. Climate Plus is supported by the World Bank. Back in October, World Bank President Ajay Banga called for a new vision for ending poverty on a livable planet with a focus on climate action. We cannot endure another period of emission-heavy growth. We must find a way to finance a different world where our climate is protected, where pandemics are manageable, if not preventable, where food is abundant and fragility and poverty are defeated. We do not suffer from a shortage of solutions. We're just paralyzed by a persistent lack of courage to pursue them. The good news is that we have solutions like these within reach and resources at our disposal to scale them. To learn more about efforts to end poverty on a livable planet, search for the World Bank Group at COP28 or click the link in the show notes. Let's pivot to loss and damage, something that I know has been really front and center for you, um, and probably something that represents one of the biggest outcomes of COP27, um, though, of course, an outcome now that needs to be um, sort of figured out, I suppose, or, or, or 
um, put into action. Um, and that's obviously one of the big tasks of COP28. Um, you know, I, I think loss and damage is probably something that has moved from the realm of climate negotiation jargon to something much more real for people in the last few years as we've witnessed, you know, unprecedented and historic um, what were once anomalous <laughs> um, weather and disaster events um, now take place so much more frequently and, and um, really in all parts of the world. Can you give us a sense of what the most important thing uh, that negotiators have to figure out with regard to loss and damage is at COP28? What's, their, what's top of their to-do list? Sure, Michael, and, and you are absolutely right in saying that uh, the breakthrough that we got at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, last December uh, was historic, and it happened after years, uh, I would say decades, of our uh, push and advocacy. Um, just to recap, the very first time the issue of climate impacts or adverse impacts of climate change, as it's called, was uh, brought up by Vanuatu uh, representing small island states in 1991, uh, but it was brushed aside, and um, you know, and and developing countries also at that time were hopeful that by reducing our emissions we'll be able to avert the climate crisis. A uh, couple of years down the line, uh, we saw impacts were already uh, beginning to happen, and communities were not able to deal with. That's how we started working on adaptation. But look at where we have landed, where we are seeing uh, devastating floods and extremely intense storms, um, unprecedented, and how raging wildfires are affecting uh, people around the world. And we are also seeing how uh, sea levels are rising, uh, which is uh, displacing now hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, given the trend, it looks like millions are going to be displaced uh, over the next few years. And when you reach that situation where you could not adapt to climate impacts, which we thought we will be able to, then you have to address those impacts by helping people recover and rebuild their lives. And, and that's how we uh, define the terminology of loss and damage. And we have reached a point where not only we have to stay below 1.5 so that we are not adding fuel to the fire, which is connected to the whole fossil fuel story as I was talking about. Uh, as we burn more fossil fuels, we are going to cause more problem. But at the same time, uh, we have to help people to adapt. Uh, so there is a recent report uh, by UNEP uh, which talks about adaptation finance gap. It's now reaching hundreds of billions of dollars and 50% more than what they projected uh, several years ago. So the gap is widening, which means we are leaving people unprepared. Now, when you look at the situation where temperatures are rising, people don't have support to adapt, they are going to be seeing their homes getting flooded and their, their farms getting damaged and their crops destroyed and uh, their land um, swallowed by rising seas. In that situation, the work on loss and damage fund becomes absolutely fundamental. And that's why COP28 uh, you know, has to deliver on now the operationalization of the fund that we agreed at COP27. So we need to look at that connection of 
mitigation, adaptation and loss and damage. And in that context, we have to ramp up action across the board. So Harjit, give us a sense of where the negotiations break down. What are the, the lines of the debate? What are the constituencies and where do they differ on this question of loss and damage? So if I talk about big issues, uh, the biggest one is location. Now, developing countries want this fund to be a standalone under the financial mechanism of the UN uh, and ha having its own legal identity so that it can operate with full flexibility and freedom. Whereas developed countries have been arguing that it should be hosted under the World Bank. Now, we all know the challenges uh, with the World Bank, the way it has uh, been operating for several years and decades, how it has not really helped developing countries. There are issues related to access. Uh, and particularly, we are talking about this fund to be unique by also providing direct access to communities who are facing climate impacts. So that is a big fight where developed countries are going for a take it or leave it option. And that's where the negotiations uh, have been very challenging. But then there are other issues. Uh, rich countries also want to reinterpret what was agreed at Shamal Sheikh on who uh, should receive the money. Now, the agreement was that all developing countries, particularly vulnerable, whereas developed countries want to limit it to small island states and least developed countries and leaving very little space for countries like Pakistan or how we saw floods in Libya or Colombia, Honduras, um, Malaysia, many other countries who are highly vulnerable, but they don't belong to those lists. So that's another contentious issue. So what developing countries and we uh, are pushing for, that all developing countries uh, should be eligible, uh, knowing that we are taking the sides of vulnerable people in those countries. The third big issue is who pays. Now, from our perspective, it is very clear that developed countries are responsible for the crisis uh, and they must be the primary contributors to the fund. Uh, also knowing that needs are going to be a lot. So, we are keeping the option open for voluntary contributions, not only from developing countries uh, who uh, can provide resources, but also for, from philanthropies or um, you know, other large international organizations, whoever wants to contribute. But rich countries don't want uh, this particular agreement at COP28 to mention that developed countries have a specific responsibility. So these are major issues. There are also issues related to what text you put in. For instance, rich countries, again, don't want any reference on the quantum of money. And we know that we need hundreds of billions of dollars, but they don't want to mention that. They're also pushing for sub-funds uh, so that they can earmark funding. So there are also many operational issues in terms of the board size, which I think can be, can be easily resolved. But those three issues on location, who gets and who pays, and wrapping that around with the principles of equity uh, is something where discussions have been extremely challenging because of the pushback that we are getting from the developed world. 
Let me ask you about this location piece, the, the sort of World Bank versus new institution question. We've seen new climate institutions between you know, the Adaptation Fund, the Green Climate Fund, and I don't think many would dispute that the process of creating them, of staffing them, of figuring out their operational policies, all of that is very, very difficult, takes a long time, and in some cases I think is still you know, suffering some growing pains. Is there a legitimate concern about going through all of that again for a, a loss and damage fund? Well, there is no uh, doubt that setting up a new institution takes time. And this is why uh, developing countries have been open to even discuss with the World Bank. And there was a conversation at the fourth transitional committee meeting, but the World Bank could not answer those questions, uh, providing that confidence on issues around access or independence. And also the business model of the World Bank of providing loans, whereas what we need uh, is grants. Now, yes, it takes time, but then we don't have to repeat things that we already have uh, taken decisions on. And this is where whatever was agreed at the Green Climate Fund, which definitely took years, uh, can be as, as we call grandfathered or grandmothered, which means we can simply pick up those decisions and say, since we already agreed, we just adopt those decisions. For example, intermediary organizations or many of the policies like gender policy or how do we prioritize uh, you know, uh, uh, certain actions. So all those things can be done um, because it is important to get the institution right. And World Bank, with the way it operates and the kind of inflexibilities it has and the uh, role that its own board is going to play if we want any significant change, uh, which we will want because we are dealing with unknowns right now. Look at the kind of disasters we are facing at this moment and we know future is going to be so uncertain. So we need a fund which is more flexible. So even if it takes a while, it makes a lot more sense to have a new institution, but the uh, middle ground could be that we, ha we can have an interim institution so that we can immediately start uh, providing money to people and learn what is needed so that the new institution can then uh, be far more efficient and effective. Okay, so part of what you're saying, it sounds like, is that expediency here should not trump setting up the institution that's going to work best for getting funds to climate vulnerable countries. Exactly. And, and you know what pains me? And this is where I find that doublespeak when the argument of speed, Michael, comes from rich countries. I have witnessed how rich countries did not even allow the discussion to happen on loss and damage finance. And that's why I was talking about that 30-year-old history of this issue. And particularly since 2013, we had to fight tooth and nail to agree on an institution uh, which we finally got in 2013 in Warsaw, what is known as Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage. And I have attended most of the executive committee meetings and I have seen how the kind of arm-twisting rich countries did that we could not even discuss the issue of finance. 
and now they are talking about speed. I mean, you are the one who actually did not allow this conversation. What we are discussing in 2023 should have been discussed in 2014, immediately after we agreed uh, that mechanism to be established. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that is an absolute uh, doublespeak and, and hypocrisy. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you are likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com slash newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. You mentioned the board of the World Bank and sort of the ways that the World Bank functions, the, the way that it's governed. You know, I've seen some of the criticisms about, you know, this is an institution where rich countries have disproportionate amounts of power given their disproportionate shareholding. Um, it all brings exactly it brings to mind for me the geopolitical aspect of all of this. Um, I don't need to tell you that there's been a lot written. Let, and a, let, Let's talk straight. It's a control issue, Michael. It's a control issue. And um, if World Bank hosts this fund, rich countries are going to try to dictate their terms. And that's why what, what I was ref referring earlier is the sub-fund, which is earmarking of money. So they are trying to have an institution that listens to them more. And they're also trying to plug in ways so that they can even dictate how money is going to be channeled to countries. Again, as you said, it's geopolitics. And we don't want that to happen because when we go to the UN space and the reason we wanted this fund to be under the UN, because that's where all countries are equal. We should be deciding through a process who needs money now and who need it most and not geopolitics to decide whether they like a particular country or not or they want to have a trade deal or they want to favor a particular country. No, that should not happen. It should be primarily based on needs and their capacity. I think one of the loudest narratives coming out of the UN General Assembly in September um, was about a growing rift between higher income and lower and middle income countries. You know, in that case, I think framed perhaps more around um, the collective failure to make sufficient progress on the sustainable development goals, um, a sort of sense that uh, higher income countries have prioritized other things rather than um, some of the agreements that they've made to support development and global health and humanitarian assistance. What you're talking about with respect to loss and damage and this question of whether it should be at the World Bank or under the UN makes me wonder how optimistic you are about 
the ability for these two sort of distinct categories of countries, I mean, explicitly distinct within the, the framework of the UNFCCC, are they able to come together and and negotiate and come to agreement over these issues? I mean, what do you think is going to be the the tenor of the negotiations this year? Well, I would say developing countries have been largely united. Uh, of course, it's a much bigger group compared to developed countries. We're talking about 130 plus countries with different, um, you know, socioeconomic status. Yet, they all recognize uh, that they have to stand together and that's how they achieved success at Shamal Sheikh by sticking together. And, and we have seen, and of course, many conversations uh, get difficult, but they are together. And within the group also, there is an understanding that the most vulnerable countries among them uh, will get some kind of priority. So uh, that unity is there and they are negotiating together and they are making statements and, and putting out their demands uh, in terms of what they need in the fund and how it needs to be designed. So I would say they are fairly united. And uh, developed countries have always uh, been because their interests are, are, are very clear. It's about uh, either evading responsibility, something that they have been doing for a long time, and now narrowing their responsibility. And they are fairly uh, you know, um, united to, to, to kind of make that uh, argument. Uh, of course, the U.S. leads the pack, uh, whether it's pushing the World Bank option or uh, trying to uh, narrow the responsibility, which is also you know, an attempt to, to divide and conquer uh, the group of developing countries. So inevitably, um, I mean, maybe we'll be surprised this year, but it seems to me inevitably these negotiations go until the very last minute, usually um, several hours or days beyond the very last minute. What's your prediction um, for how things conclude at COP28 this year? Um, if you want to make it an optimistic prediction, that's great. Um, what would it mean for those negotiations to um, to wrap up in a way that you would be able to say COP28 was a success? Well, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, no doubt uh, it, has been an Hercu Her it has been a Herculean task to uh, design a fund in a matter of few months. Um, and we know that not all issues are going to be resolved. Some of the details uh, in terms of uh, allocation criteria or um, you know, how money is going to be channeled and some of those details um, in terms of how do you receive uh, the request from developing countries, those can be worked out in 2024. I think the key decision that we need to take at, uh, at uh, COP28 is the fund is operationalized, the board is agreed, uh, the host is agreed, and then they start rolling out the details which are more about now setting the institution in a manner that it begins to channel money. So that message of hope coming out of COP28 is extremely important because we cannot arrive at a conclusion saying it's a work in progress. No. Um, it has to take a big, bold step of saying we have agreed on the operationalization and it is happening now and it's fine it's if it takes a few months so that's and and what i'm saying is realistic um, because last few months have been extremely intense 
and uh, all parties have put uh, their time and effort uh, to uh, negotiate. Now it's about really delivering it uh, to the people and for the people. And who do you anticipate will be potential spoilers here? I know that Climate Action Network is um, sort of notorious for one of your public demonstrations, the um, fossil of the day, um, where you sort of single out the negotiating party that's obstructed progress. Um, Do you have any sense of... Well, we will be... We will be calling out countries uh, every day uh, who stall negotiations, be it on uh, operationalization of the loss and damage fund or not agreeing to uh, fossil fuel phase out in a just and equitable manner and many other agenda items that are there. But we see the United States actually being the biggest blocker uh, in the negotiations so far. Of course, they have been engaging and they can claim to say that Uh, They uh, are putting their options on the table, uh, which has been um, which has been a departure from their their previous way of engaging. But then the kind of options you put on the table also matters. Right. So it's not just about you coming and and, continuously talking and saying what you need or what you don't want. Uh, But if it's not helping the negotiations, if it's not fair, just and equitable, then we won't accept it. So they are engaging, but they're also blocking certain things and they are being very adamant on some of their proposals. So they have to really loosen up and they have to also uh, start providing money because they are negotiating, they're pushing their options, but look at their track record. So I would definitely put a spotlight on the US and then I would like to see Europe coming out of uh, the shadow of the U.S. and uh, has its own position because uh, no doubt Europe has been engaging and many countries uh, in uh, uh, the EU uh, who are uh, even providing support for other parts of uh, climate finance, they now must come forward and start uh, providing uh, money for loss and damage as well. So, uh, yes, so U.S. is the biggest blocker, and then they also get support from Australia uh, and uh, Japan and uh, some other countries. Well, Harjeet, thank you so much for giving us this glimpse behind the curtain. Um, It's a whole world of activism and policy that I think um, some people like you are intimately familiar with and and others um, tend to follow, you know, year to year from the, the cops, but it's um, it's fascinating to hear about all of the work that you do in between those high-level moments, and we appreciate you talking to us. Thank you, Michael. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Climate Plus. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, and you can also leave us a rating or a review. We'll be publishing episodes twice a week in the lead up to, during, and after COP28. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. If you want to share some feedback on this episode or have questions you'd like answered, we'd love to hear from you. Drop me a message on X, formerly Twitter, at alterigo, or send an email to podcast at devx.com. Climate Plus is a podcast from DevX. It's hosted by me, Michael Igo. Today's episode was produced and edited 
by Naomi Miara.